This morning, I want to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you were listening to the scripture reading this morning, uh, Peter read uh, verses 1 through 7, or was it 8? I, I guess I wasn't listening very closely. I want to start in verse 8, and we're going to look at this passage this morning. This is an important text that has ramifications for the doctrines of biblical inerrancy and uh, inspiration and Old Testament hermeneutics, how we interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament revelation. This text also touches on the issue of the human author's intent, and it raises a question about the perspicuity of Scripture. So it's a complex and and very important passage, and I hope to answer some of the hard questions that it raises. And by the way, for, for those of you who sometimes joke that you need a dictionary when you listen to me. I just used the word perspicuity, which might be unfamiliar to some of you. And I, I, I love this word because it's kind of ironic, perspicuity. Nobody knows what it means, but the word itself means clarity of expression, perspicuity. So when we say something is perspicuous, we're saying that it's clear and obvious and easy to understand, unlike the word perspicuity itself, I guess. So... So that comes from a Latin word, perspicuity, that means transparent or clear. And so to speak with perspicuity is to express ideas with, with clarity, to make things understandable. And we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, which is to say, in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that those things which are necessary for us to know and believe and observe for salvation, those things are so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture or another so that not only learned people but also unlearned people by a due use of ordinary means can attain to a sufficient understanding of them. That's almost verbatim how the Confession of Faith says it. But in other words, what it's saying is that everything you absolutely need to know and understand in Scripture is easy to understand. And if you truly seek understanding, you can, you can get it. The Westminster Confession itself isn't always perfectly perspicuous, I think, but that's what it's saying. And so we affirm the absolute perspicuity of Scripture with this qualification. We would also confess that there are some things in Scripture that are not instantly obvious. There there is no single proof text that explains the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. But nevertheless, all of the essential Trinitarian principles are sufficiently clear so that serious-minded, objective students of Scripture can, can get them. If you study in earnest what the New Testament says about the Godhead... Trinitarian principles will emerge from the text itself. And furthermore, the basic framework of Trinitarian doctrine will be sufficiently clear to you. Even if you have learning disabilities, you ought to be able to get it. That's the perspicuity of Scripture. That's what we mean by this doctrine. Now again, that does not mean that everything in Scripture is elementary and uncomplicated. And the doctrine of the Trinity is a classic example of that. There are some specifics and technicalities that you, you're going to need to know and be able to, to state with precision if you're going to teach 
the doctrine of the Trinity or answer the basic questions about it, it's not all simple and elementary. And, and the great confessions of faith recognize that fact even as they affirm the perspicuity of Scripture. For example, I was quoting from earlier from the Westminster Confession. That statement on perspicuity begins with this. It says, all things in Scripture are not equally plain in themselves, nor equally clear unto all. And that's pretty obvious, right? Scripture has some passages that are not easy to interpret. And in fact, it recognizes that. The Apostle Peter recognized that Paul's epistles were inspired Scripture. He, he, he affirmed that. But in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says this about Paul's epistles, that in all his letters, there are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, Peter says, as they do the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. And here in our text, Peter is acknowledging that the Old Testament prophets themselves didn't always understand their own prophetic predictions as clearly or as thoroughly as we do. And so here's our text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. And, and again, notice, remember from our scripture reading this morning, the immediate context at the end of verse 7, <coughs> Peter mentions the second coming, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he writes this, verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which have now been declared to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, several several things to notice about this passage before we get into it. First, here's some historical context. This is a letter Peter wrote to believers in exile. These were mostly, if not all of them, Jewish believers who, because of relentless persecution, they had had to leave their homes and livelihood, most of them in Israel, in and around Jerusalem, and they had been scattered to the outer edges of the Roman Empire. Chapter 1, verse 1, he's writing, notice, to those who reside as exiles, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. So he's writing to Christians, and they're people who've been scattered through these regions that he names. These are all regions actually in the, in the what's the Turkish peninsula today, Asia Minor. Divine providence had taken these Jewish Christians out into Gentile regions where, because of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, the gospel was already being proclaimed there, and solid churches had been established amongst the Gentiles, and the suffering of these Jewish refugees was profound. We know from history that the the persecution they faced was acute. They, They were persecuted not only because of their Jewish ethnicity, but also because of their faith in Christ. 
And so they got a double dose of persecution. Officially sanctioned persecution against Christianity under Nero meant that literally their lives were in constant jeopardy. Most of them had already literally lost every material thing they ever had when their homes in Jerusalem had been burned and leveled. They'd been forced into exile in far-flung places where they faced additional hostilities because of their ethnicity and enmity because of their faith. And so they're being subjected to these multiple layers of suffering, religious persecution, government-sanctioned discrimination, social injustice, the loss of all their wealth, everything. But Peter, notice, he does not dwell on any of those things. He doesn't write to them about justice or social justice or any of that. In fact, he mentions their distress almost in passing with what's really an understatement in verse 6. You've been grieved by various trials. He doesn't urge them to stage political protests. He doesn't tell them to organize themselves into a movement you know, lobbying for the reordering of Roman society. He doesn't tell them to form a rebellion against Nero. He urges them to set their minds and their hopes on Christ, and he calls them to holy living. Three verses, starting in verse 13. Therefore, having girded your minds for action, be sober in spirit, fix your hope completely On the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, you be holy yourselves in all your conduct. And so with that background in mind, notice that one of the key lessons Peter wants to stress throughout this entire epistle is that suffering is the pathway to glory. That's like... The dominant theme here, suffering is the pathway to glory. In the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 8, 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Peter says the same thing, but he says it this way, 1 Peter 4, 13, to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And so he again connects the idea of suffering and glory in verse 1 of chapter 5, where he refers to himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So you see this, this twin, this coupling of the ideas of suffering and glory. They always go together. He's reminding them that all of our suffering on this earth will ultimately give way to inexpressible glory and joy. And that's his whole reason for writing this epistle. And he sums it up in a key verse at the very end, 1 Peter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and strengthen and confirm and ground you. So suffering is merely a prelude to glory. That's what he's reminding us. Now, one other thing that jumps out at me from this passage is the brilliant way Peter simplifies every truth he writes about, and he boils it down with familiar words and concepts. You know, he's not like so many of today's academic-minded evangelicals. You know, I read a tough a ton of stuff from 
Christian writers, mostly in the academic realm, who write as if the goal is to impress and astound the world rather than to edify and encourage the saints. You know, even some of our seminary students get carried away like that. Not the Grace Life ones, but others. (laughs) Peter, of course, was a fisherman before he became a disciple. And so he knew from experience and, and from the example of Christ himself, he knew how vital it is to present truth in simple terms. By contrast, Paul, you know, was one of the most educated men of his era, but he also understood this principle, and he told the Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with superiority of word or wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God. He said, my words and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because, he said... God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. And in fact, you remember it was Jesus himself who prayed, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So, you seminary students, keep that in mind, not only when you write, but especially when you preach. Anyway, here's an example of how Peter boils the, the truth down to the most elementary principles. In the opening two verses of our passage, he pretty much borrows the Apostle Paul's threefold taxonomy of essential Christian virtues from 1 Corinthians 13, 3, where Paul says, but now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Notice, Peter cites those same three virtues. Working backward from verse 9, he's saying essentially, you may be suffering at the moment, but you have the hope of eternal salvation and glory. And then verse 8, you can't see Christ right now, but you have faith in him. And in the beginning of verse 8, Peter says, you haven't seen or been with Christ like I have, but you love him. So there are those three virtues, faith, hope, and love. Those are the virtues that will see us through our current trials. That's what Peter boils it down to. These virtues, these three virtues, faith, hope, and love, explain and fill out the promise of verses 6 and 7 that you can greatly rejoice despite your trials because the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold that's perishable, even though it's tested by fire, it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That all those three virtues, faith, hope, and love, point us to that truth. So actually, though this is written to troubled people in desperate circumstances, This is a very encouraging passage, and and if I were going to summarize the message of our text, here's how I would say it. I'd say it like this. The amazing honor that God bestows on sinners who he saves is infinitely greater than, and it far outweighs all of the bitter wretchedness that we will ever endure in this fallen world. There's a glory coming that outweighs all of this life's troubles, and as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, our, our momentary light affliction 
is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. This is a truth that runs through the New Testament. This is what heaven is all about. It's why we're supposed to keep our thoughts and our aspirations focused on heaven and not on earthly things. And Peter actually takes an even broader point of view than Paul does. He not only reminds us that eternal glory awaits us in eternity, but he also points out that even that we even enjoy some, some remarkable spiritual advantages even in this life. In other words, the, the blessings we enjoy in Christ are not all reserved for the sweet by and by. Some of them apply to the hectic here and now. And in fact, we enjoy the certain privileges that the saints who have gone before us would have died for. Here are three facts about the Christian faith that demonstrate what a high privilege God has bestowed on wretched sinners when he redeems us. Three blessings that should help us endure the sufferings of this present time. Number one, there's a joy that surpasses even the experience of Jesus' original disciples. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter is describing the joy that is the birthright of every true believer. And it's inexpressible, he says, and full of glory, which is how Scripture describes Christ, right? Full of glory. Our joy is similarly full of glory. It's a deep inner joy that exists even alongside the greatest sorrows of this life. It's the joy that has permitted countless Christian martyrs to face death triumphantly. It's not only a a confirmation and a buttress for our faith, it's a force that overwhelms and ultimately redeems every sorrow that we experience. And it's analogous to what a woman would experience in childbirth. In fact, Jesus used that very imagery in John 16 in the upper room, John 16, verses 21 and 22. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a child has been brought into the world. Therefore, you too have sorrow now, but your heart will rejoice, and no one will ever take your joy away from you. That's a promise of Christ. And again, this is the birthright of every true believer, and it's our duty to to cultivate and express that joy in spite of whatever circumstances we face. Philippians 4, verse 4, is a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. The youngest, most inexperienced believer has access to that joy. It's not just for high-level apostles. And in fact, Peter's making the point that in this regard, on, on this matter... Peter says his apostolic experience doesn't actually give him any advantage over every other believer. We all have this privilege. Yeah, Peter spent three years being personally discipled by Christ. 
He saw the Lord's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was an eyewitness to the resurrection. He was given the opportunity post-resurrection to confirm his love verbally to Christ in that touching scene in John 21 where Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So if anything, the love of these saints in the dispersion was actually more remarkable than Peter's love for Christ because they hadn't spent time with him. They had never seen him. And yet their love for him, Peter says, is evident. And, and that is the manifest proof that their faith was real, their love for Christ. So now hold on to that thought for a moment because I want to come back to it. Here's the thought, that love for Christ, that is the surest, most reliable proof of your salvation. If you struggle with a lack of assurance, here's the key you ought to look for. Do you really love Christ? But first, I want to remind you that this is not the only time Peter makes this point that Personal experience is not a good test of truth. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he describes how he was an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration when, to borrow Peter's words, Christ received honor and glory from the Father. Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. That's 2 Peter 1.17. And in the next verse, Peter says, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. He's saying he heard the voice of God coming from heaven and multiple eyewitnesses, two other disciples, heard the same thing. He says, we all heard it. It was real. He's saying this was a vivid experience, perhaps more significant and, and more memorable and certainly more lustrous than anything Peter ever witnessed prior to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. He had never seen or heard anything like this. And not only that, it was a shared experience, as I said, jointly witnessed by two other disciples. James and John were both there. They all heard it. And still then, in the next verse, 2 Peter 1.18, Peter says, but we have more sure the prophetic word. He's talking there about the written scriptures. And he's saying that God's written word is more sure, more reliable than anyone's personal experience, even his own personal experience, even though Peter's testimony was also the combined experience of, of the three top-ranking disciples, and all of them confirmed the truth of it, he's saying Scripture's more reliable than that even. And one of the clear implications in our text is that faith in Christ is superior to a personal relationship with Christ. I hate that expression because it's so overused in our generation. Faith in Christ is something more than a personal relationship with Christ. People say that all the time. Instead of talking about authentic faith in Christ, it is not the same thing. A personal relationship with Christ won't save you if that relationship is anything less than true faith, unquestioning faith in the one true Christ whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Again, I'm quoting from the confession of faith, but that's the point. Judas had a personal relationship with Christ. He didn't have real faith. You can have a, a relationship with Christ and fall short of real faith. You can even be a full-time disciple. You can pursue a career in ministry. You can experience all the privileges of instruction and blessing from Christ himself and still fall short of saving faith. 
Again, that is exactly what Judas did. Countless others have made that same fatal error. The evangelical pragmatism of our generation has literally filled churches with false disciples. But Judas stands as the singular example of a a false apostle who squandered more privileges and more advantages than any other. He had personally, face-to-face, communed with Christ. Christ treated him as a friend. In John 13, 18, Jesus cites Psalm 41, verse 9 as a prophecy about Judas. So this is Christ speaking prophetically where the psalm says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So despite all of the favor that was shown to him, all the teaching he received, all the personal discipleship that he got, and his personal relationship with Christ, Judas never really knew the true joy of the Lord. He didn't have any love for Christ. Now, let me come back to the point that I referred to about the believer's love for Christ. What I said is that love for Christ is the most important defining mark of true saving faith. 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty two. if anyone does not love the Lord... He is to be accursed. Matthew 10, 37. Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And John 8, 42, Jesus again, If God were your father, you would love me. In other words, if you don't love Christ, you're not a true believer at all. And furthermore, true love for Christ is shown in obedience to him. Jesus said so repeatedly. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 1 John 5, verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So these Christians to whom Peter is writing did love Christ, even though they had never seen him. They genuinely believed in him, even though there was literally no way for them to lay eyes on Christ. And that's worth a comment, by the way. There's no shortage of charismatics today who claim to have seen Christ, you know, in their dreams or, or visions or apparitions or other suspicious kinds of manifestations. But notice how what Peter says here, 1 Peter 1.8, you do not see him now. And because of the uniqueness of his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul was privileged to see the risen Christ in a physical manifestation, even after Christ had ascended. And Paul talks about that, and he lists the eyewitnesses to the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, and he includes himself, but notice how he says it. He says, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul is acknowledging that his situation, having seen Christ physically, was unique. He's the last to do that. And so I'll say this plainly. When people tell you that Christ appeared to them personally, they're lying. Because Peter quite obviously did not regard that kind of experience as even a possibility. Even for those beleaguered first century believers who desperately needed encouragement, he did not expect or think it was even possible that they would see Christ. However, He's telling them that what they already have 
is superior to any kind of experience like that. And and this is a necessary implication of the point he makes in verse 8. Although these believers were living in exile and suffering intense persecution, they nevertheless possessed a deep joy and abiding faith and true love for Christ. They had never seen Christ, and yet they had a love for him that Judas never had. They were already miles ahead of all of those disciples in John chapter 6 who both saw and heard Christ's teaching, but they abandoned him when his teaching didn't fit their style. These people weren't doing that. These were true believers. The fact that these suffering believers had never seen Christ in any way did not diminish their position of glory and honor in Christ. And in fact, Christ himself pronounced a particular blessing on saints who would believe without ever having the possibility of seeing him. You remember when Thomas said he he wouldn't believe in the resurrection until he could see it for himself? John 20, 25, but he said to the other disciples, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, Thomas says, I will not believe. And when he finally did see and believe, John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. So there is a special blessedness that belongs to those of us who believe in Christ without actually seeing him. And in fact, really, that's, I would say, the very essence of faith, according to Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Noah, being warned about things not seen, believed the word of God. Moses endured as seeing him who is unseen. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not on the things that are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 5.7, we walk by faith, not by sight. So their belief in and their love for Jesus, whom they had never seen and couldn't possibly see, this was the purest kind of faith. And furthermore, simple faith from these persecuted saints actually gave them a supernatural abiding joy that surpassed whatever natural benefits they might have gleaned from personal discipleship with Christ, even if they could have seen him. This was better because, verse 9, the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. Eternal salvation. That's a guaranteed benefit that neither Judas nor those apostate disciples in John chapter 6 will ever enjoy. And if the promise of eternity is not a source of unshakable joy for you, you need to remind yourself of the praise and glory and honor we will share at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what he's writing to remind them about. So that's blessing number one that belongs to every genuine believer. It's a joy that surpasses even the personal experience of Jesus' original disciples. Here's blessing number two. Number two, it's truth that surpasses the understanding of the Old Testament prophets. We have access to truth that goes beyond what the Old Testament prophets knew. Verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
Now, as, as I said at the start, this passage tends to confuse people who think that it poses a challenge to the perspicuity of Scripture. The question arises, did those Old Testament prophets understand what they wrote, or didn't they? Did they know what they were saying, or did they not? And if the writers themselves wondered about the meaning of their prophecies, how can we say Scripture's perspicuous if the human author didn't fully understand it? Now, first of all, bear in mind that perspicuity does not mean that there's nothing in the Bible that's hard to understand. We've already dealt with that. Scripture itself acknowledges that in the text of Scripture are some things hard to understand. And you have to be careful with that because the untaught and unstable distort those things along with the rest of Scripture. That's 2 Peter 3.16 again. But the doctrine of perspicuity means everything we need to understand, everything that's absolutely essential for us to get, and everything that we study diligently, it's sufficiently understandable. Here's how I said it earlier. Everything you absolutely need to know in Scripture is easy enough to understand if you truly seek understanding. And the prophetic predictions in Scripture are, by their very nature, purposely by God, veiled in mystery. Prophecy, you know, I tell people this all the time because everybody always wants to know, you know, what's going to happen next on the prophetic timeline? What specifically do you think is going to be the outcome of of today's world events and all of that. And I keep reminding people that the prophetic predictions in Scripture are purposely mysterious, that prophecy is not given to us so that we can make a detailed calendar of future events and know with great precision exactly what the future is going to bring and when it's going to happen. Prophecies are given to us so that we will recognize the providential hand of God as these events unfold. Speaking of his second coming, Jesus said in Mark 13, 32, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. He's saying in his human consciousness, in, in his brain as a man, Jesus himself didn't even know the specific day or the hour. And he was saying the mystery here is deliberate. We don't need to know the details or the timeline of future events. And that's why this passage here in 1 Peter really poses no challenge to our confidence in the Bible's perspicuity. The things that aren't clear, and especially the times and the details of future events, those things are things we don't need to know anyway. And so here's a principle to bear in mind. Prophecy is given mainly for the benefit of future generations so that those who live to see the actual fulfillment of the prophecies will recognize it. And when that happens, the meanings of these mysterious revelations are made clear. The New Testament explains the depth of meaning in in many of the Old Testament's prophetic references, like when Jesus explains that. Psalm 41.9 is a reference to Judas, where he says, even my close friend who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You wouldn't know that as a reader of the Old Testament, that this refers to one of Jesus' 12 disciples. But when it happens, Scripture points out to us, this is a fulfillment of that. And there are countless examples like that in the New Testament. What is essential is clear. And Peter is clear about what the Old Testament prophets actually did understand. Namely, they understood 
that they were writing about a redeemer who would save his people from their sins. They were, they were teaching soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to you. They had questions, he says, about the timing and the identity of the Redeemer. They surely had questions about the order of the events that they foresaw, and that's understandable because, verse 11, they predicted both the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And many of the prophets, I'm sure, were were asking, how do you put these together? How can the Messiah be so full of glory and yet suffer so much? How do you reconcile the horrific sufferings described in Isaiah 53 with the many Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah's coming in glory as a conqueror? The, the prophets were trying to put all of this together. They didn't understand the, the timing and the specifics. What they did understand, however, because, as Peter says, it was revealed to them was that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit who was sent from heaven. Now it's clear, because we've seen Christ suffer and rise and ascend to heaven, and we know he's coming in glory. And so all those Old Testament prophecies fit in a way that the prophets themselves could not possibly have understood. So Believers today have a distinct advantage over the Old Testament prophets. We have access to truth that surpasses what the prophets could see and sort out. We understand what they wrote with a thoroughness that even they themselves could not attain. And there's a significant lesson about the inspiration and authority of Scripture here. Peter knew from personal experience what it was like to be used by God to write scripture. And so he has great empathy with the human authors of the Old Testament. Without denying the human authorship of scripture, he makes it very clear for us that behind the prophets, moving them as they wrote, was the Holy Spirit, who is the sovereign author whose word is being written down by these men in their words, but also the Spirit's words. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter takes up this same theme, and there he says it like this, No prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So one of the most important passages about divine inspiration in Scripture. And here in our passage, you see a perfect illustration of that. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Just take that statement one phrase at a time and overlay it with what Peter says in our passage. Men spoke, verse 10, the prophets prophesied. From God, also verse 10, the Spirit of Christ within them predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, verse 12, Those who proclaimed the gospel to you spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so what we have in our text is the exact process that Peter lays out in his second epistle as well. And the key to understanding what's happening here is that first phrase in 2 Peter 1, verse 21. No prophecy was ever made by the will of man. The full meaning of the text of any scripture is is determined by divine authorship, 
not merely the human author. You see this, for example, clearly in John chapter 11, verse 50, where Caiaphas, the evil high priest, while he and the Sanhedrin are actually plotting to kill Christ, Caiaphas says, it's better that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. And the Apostle John makes this comment about that. He says this, quote, Now he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So even Caiaphas, evil Caiaphas, utters a prophecy unwittingly that has meaning the Holy Spirit intends that Caiaphas is totally unaware of. Now, let me be clear about this. I'm not saying there are multiple meanings in any scripture or that the meaning of scripture is a, is a mysterious clue that we can't make out. There is only one true interpretation of scripture. Keep that in mind when you're reading and interpreting the Bible. Scripture is not laden with a, a, an infinite number of true interpretations. And also, furthermore, the Bible is not a puzzle with hidden truths that you can only decipher by some clever code-breaking or using some kind of Gnostic insight. It's not that at all. But nevertheless, and especially in the prophetic passages where truths are deliberately cloaked in mystery, there might be a layer of truth that goes beyond the human author's personal understanding. Because behind him, the true author is the Holy Spirit, like the prophecy of Caiaphas. Or as Peter says here, the Old Testament prophets who knew that they were not serving themselves, but you. And again, it doesn't mean that there's more than one correct interpretation of the text. It means that the one true interpretation of the text might have a layer of significance that's not necessarily obvious on the face of it. It's, it's kind of like double entendre, you know, a play on words where a single statement can have two references and both of them are deliberate. In the cleverest examples of double entendre, the, the two ways of understanding a text are usually simultaneously true. Here's an example. Some clever newspaper editor is working on a story about a research company that's doing a study on obesity. And the researchers are trying to get some, some more extremely obese people to volunteer for their study. And so this is the headline the editor wrote. New obesity study looks for a larger test group. <laughs> There's two meanings there, and both of them are intentional. Both are true, both are correct, and a correct, complete interpretation would have to take both meanings into account. That's the only way you can appreciate the cleverness of that editor. Now, someone might point out that the confession of faith says the true and full sense of any scripture is not manifold but one, and that's true, we affirm it, but what Peter says here and what the Apostle John says about the Caiaphas prophecy in John 11 that doesn't change this principle. We're simply recognizing what the confession also says elsewhere, namely that a full and proper interpretation of Scripture's true and full sense requires diligent work and a careful quest for complete understanding. And that's what Peter says the prophets were doing 
in verse 10. They made careful searches and inquiries. They were no doubt comparing Scripture with Scripture, seeking light on those passages that were mysterious. But because they're looking into things that were written for subsequent generations, they knew that the truth didn't just lie on the face of this. Details about Christ in in the Old Testament prophecies were scattered, and, and not every essential detail was revealed, and therefore not one single Old Testament saint ever did come to a full understanding of all of the gospel truths that were carefully concealed in mystery, but at the same time they were foreshadowed and foretold in the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so the writer of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, describes how this was God's plan to reveal truth gradually by various means until the canon as we have it today is complete. Here's Hebrews 1.1. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son. So what he's saying there is that the coming of Christ includes all of that revelation that came, that was associated with the first advent of Christ. That all explains what was purposely cloaked in the Old Testament, in mystery. And the New Testament, all of it, from the Gospels to the book of Revelation, preserves what God has spoken to us by His Son. Or to be precise, the New Testament preserves as much as we need of Christian doctrine until Christ Himself returns in glory. And it unveils all those Old Testament mysteries. So the writer of Hebrews goes on to argue that the same thing Peter's saying here, what we have in Christ is superior to everything that was ever available to the Old Testament saints. Christ is, of course, superior to all of the types and shadows that were woven into the Old Testament ceremonial law and the sacrificial system because Christ is the living fulfillment of everything those things only symbolized. Furthermore, he's superior to the angels. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The gospel is better than the law because it speaks better, more gracious things. In the words of the Apostle John, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Which doesn't mean that grace and truth were unknown concepts under the law. But what it means is we have been shown grace and truth in much greater abundance than any Old Testament saint could possibly have understood because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's what it means when it says grace and truth came from Christ. He's the embodiment of everything that was ever cloaked in mystery in the Old Testament. And so here's the point. As believers today, we have access through Christ to truth that far surpasses even the understanding of the Old Testament prophets. And this is, again, one of the blessings that shows how privileged we are as people who trust Christ as Lord and Savior to enjoy the full light of New Testament revelation. So, here's where we are to review. First, we have a joy that surpasses even the experience of Jesus' original disciples. Second, we've been shown truth that surpasses the understanding of the Old Testament prophets. And now third, we have the guarantee of glory that surpasses even the grandeur of the heavenly angels. Glory that surpasses the grandeur 
of the heavenly angels. Look at the final phrase of verse 12, the closing words of our passage. It gathers up the gospel and all the features of God's saving grace, and it refers to those doctrines as things into which angels long to look. I like that. Not only were the Old Testament saints insatiably curious about the details of their own prophecies, the angels also seem baffled and intrigued by all of it. And that makes perfect sense. Consider this. In the order of creation, angels are actually a higher rank of creature than humans. Speaking of Christ taking on full humanity, Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. So humanness is lower than angelicness? How would you say that? To be a human is to be lower than an angel. And that's a reference, by the way, to Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5, where David writes, What is man that you remember him, and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. So, again, to be human is to be lower in rank than any angel. So why would God devote so much to redeeming the fallen members of our race? Why would he have any purpose to save a wretch like me? He didn't save any of the angels, and I'm a lower rank than they are. And no doubt, that's one of the questions the angels wanted to look into. Why would God be so concerned with humanity? Because in the scope of all creation, we are almost laughably insignificant. It's after all, the entire human race, all of us, are fallen. Romans 3.12, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's a description of the spiritual and moral state of humanity, all of us. And there were, of course, multitudes of angels who sinned as well. Not the whole race, but if you take Revelation 12, verse 4, as a description of Satan's original rebellion, and I believe that's what it is, what Scripture is saying is that a third, one-third of all the angelic armies joined Satan and fell in with him, and fell with him. They were higher and more glorious creatures than humans. They were not made of dust and confined to a planet that was made of dust. They were heavenly creatures. They inhabited the spiritual realm and and transcended the whole physical universe. And yet, when they fell... Those angels who rebelled were condemned and cast out of heaven with no possibility of redemption ever. There was no way they could atone for their sin. There was no redeemer who could deliver them. Their damnation literally is already sealed. So it's no wonder that the angels would show amazement and interest when the creator himself stepped out of heaven and in the words of Hebrews 2.9, made himself lower than the angels for the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Which means, of course, that text is saying that he died, suffered and died as a proxy, a substitute for every human who would ever trust him. Why would he do that? Why would that be the eternal plan and purpose of a sovereign and all-glorious God, a holy God, to save such a wretched race. You can understand how the angels would be curious about that. And it wasn't that they resented it. 
These are faithful angels, I think he's talking about here. They're unburdened with any unrighteous attitudes. They, are, they have no covetous desires. They have no sinful pride. They know very well that the damnation of the angels who rebelled is perfectly just. It's precisely what they deserve. It's the privilege and delight of the faithful angels to behold the glory of God and to serve those of us who will be the heirs of salvation. When Jesus said in Luke 15, verse 7, that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance, he surely meant that the angels of heaven share in that joy. They love the salvation of sinners. But redemption is a doctrine they desire to look into more deeply because no doubt they want to see and enjoy the glory that Christ himself derives from his saving work. And the Greek expression Peter uses actually paints a vivid image. One translation, trying to get it, the literal, full literal sense of it, renders it this way. They gaze at this with outstretched necks. It's the same word James uses in James 1.25 when he speaks of the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. It's the same word John uses in John 20, verse 5, to describe Peter at the empty tomb stooping and looking in. So it's a powerful word, and it's, it's describing a careful, extended, investigative quest to discover something wondrous. This is not idle curiosity. It describes an intense desire on the part of these angels to see and understand what God is doing in redemption. And that's what should characterize our study of the gospel as well. Now, consider the point of everything I've been saying, everything we see in this passage. If you are a true believer in Christ, you are in a position of privilege that surpasses that of even Jesus' original disciples and the Old Testament prophets and even the heavenly angels. All of them, all of them would seem to rank higher on the, on the scale of cosmic significance than any of us would. Consider that. The, the prophets, the disciples who were personally instructed by Christ, the angels who live in the realms of glory, and yet all of them are keenly interested in the doctrine of salvation and the work of Christ and, and the glory that will be revealed in eternity. We ought to share that interest. It would make the trials of this life a whole lot easier to bear. And furthermore, this is the key idea. Although we were created to be lower than the angels, by our union with Christ, we've actually been exalted to a place of unimaginable privilege. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2.6. God has graciously bestowed grace and blessings on us in the Beloved which is to say that because we are spiritually united with Christ and and covered with His righteousness, we are included in the blessing God the Father pronounces regarding His own beloved Son. When He blesses Christ, He's blessing us as well, which is what makes God's grace so amazing. Not merely that He saved a wretch like me, but that He elevates me to a position that I have no natural or moral right to occupy. Because indeed, what I deserve is eternal condemnation. What he gives me in Christ is eternal glory. 
glory that Christ alone deserves. And if that truth isn't sufficient to overwhelm you and to put in context all of the sufferings of this wretched life, then I suggest you haven't thought it through carefully enough. You need to do like the angels. You need to stoop down and look at it intently. Fix your heart on Christ, because though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Let's pray. Father, fill our minds and our affections with the glory of Christ and with all the blessed privilege, undeserved privilege that is ours in Christ. We thank you for your grace to us. Seal our hearts in faith. Give us strength to be faithful. May we hate sin as you hate it. May we love righteousness the way you love it. And may we honor Christ in the way we live and love and reflect your glory the way we were created to do. Give us grace to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.